through 12. First, we're in his concluding section of the book. Last week we saw him wrapping up the whole loving God, obeying God, and obeying God from the heart. And now he gets to the real core of the matter, looking at the testimony concerning the Son and really the meaning of that, meaning of salvation in the Son and our testimony about that, or the testimony about that. And so we have a joyous passage to consider this morning. First, let us read First John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the Son, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. And whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your Son. As we consider this passage today, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage and lift up our hearts in it. Pray, Lord, that you would bless me to overcome my uh, feeling of illness, to be able to preach well, to open your word well. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit to speak the truth in love to your people and open the ears and open the hearts of those who hear. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so we come to this passage, the three who testify, one of the most perplexing statements in the entire epistle. And there are many suggested interpretations. Uh, in all certainty, John's hearers knew exactly what he was talking about, because perhaps the church had been teaching on the subject, or perhaps he had been teaching on it, or perhaps the heretics that he's fighting against had been teaching about it. Unfortunately, we don't have recorded what prompted him to say this, 
And so we struggle a bit to figure it out. You'll excuse me, but I think the heat got turned up a little high this morning for me. Maybe it's just because I'm not feeling well. And I lose the coat. So you can agree that it's a little difficult to understand. And to add injury to insult, there's some controversy surrounding verse 7. If you've ever read it in the King James Version, there's an entire second sentence in that verse. It says, there are three that bear record in heaven. And starting at in heaven, there's an addition. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Then verse 8, they've added the words, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, as far as I know, the only English translations that bear that are the King James and those based on the King James translation. And some people get quite emotional about this. I've heard people denounce those who don't believe that's part of the Bible as being heretics, saying they deny the Trinity, they deny inspiration, etc. And so I I, want to very briefly recap the history, because knowledge will help set you free from these things. In a nutshell, in the early 1500s, there was a Roman Catholic priest. He was a scholar of the Northern Renaissance, a man named Erasmus. He's been called the crowning glory of Christian humanism. He was not a believer, and his scholarly work was going to be the first one to put together a Greek New Testament. He was going to accumulate all of the scrolls and all of the parchments that he could find, and he was going to build a Greek New Testament. He found out he wasn't the only one, so he was racing against another person who was doing it. And since he lacked a few pieces, he actually translated from the Latin back into Greek in his first copy a few things. He was doing this as a scholarly exercise to make a name for himself. And he wanted to get it printed. And in all the copies of 1 John that were existent at the time, not one of the Greek copies had that text in it that is not in my ESV and probably not in whatever translations you would read other than the King James and its texts. And he refused to put it in the Greek New Testament. In an unguarded moment, he said, well, if you can show me even one Greek New Testament, one Greek copy that has it, I'll put it in. And a short time later, they showed up with a copy of the Greek that had it in it. The joke is the ink was still wet, and he put it in. Nobody accepted it as authoritative. Everybody believed it was a joke. Where did it come from? Well, that's the problem. It came from the Vulgate. The Vulgate was a Latin translation it was, it was an ancient translation, but it wasn't in the original copies of the Vulgate. It came much later. And its first occurrence, it was found in a margin. You know how we sometimes take notes in the margin of our Bibles? Well, somebody had taken a note in the margin of the Vulgate that said something similar to that. There are many variations of it in the copies. 
And eventually it wound up in the text, and eventually it wound up being part of the text. And the theory goes, some scholar wrote down his thoughts on the text and put it in there as a marginal note, you know, like we would put a commentary. And somebody copying it thought it was part of the Bible eventually and put it in. And it didn't belong there as an authoritative text, but the Catholic Church accepted it eventually, and to them, whatever they accept as authoritative is authoritative. And it has become, unfortunately, a test of your faithfulness in some circles. Do you believe it's true or not? The Catholics said, if you don't believe it, you're a heretic. Well, unfortunately, we now have people who think the King James text is authoritative, and if you don't believe that, you're a heretic. Why do they come to that conclusion? Well, if you look at the history of the English translations, the first ones after the King James were really attempts to undermine the authority of Scripture. They wanted to re- redo the Bible from a, there is no God, there is no inspiration, we want to redo the translation from that perspective. And so they deliberately translate things to contradict, where the Old Testament and New Testament talk about the same thing, they make them disagree, with the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they translate them differently, you know, allowably by the text. They try to make disagreement. And they were bad. And so people started fighting for the, the good text. And it became quite a nuisance. Our confession says that the, the text should be translated into the vulgar tongue. So we must have much cursing in the Bible. No. <laughs> the vulgar tongue, talking Elizabethan English here, means the tongue of the common man. Uh, when I first became a Christian and had a King James Bible, I would read one or two pages, pray to God I couldn't understand any of this, and go to bed. I got a modern translation in English. I read the whole Bible cover to cover in a couple of months. Uh, we need it in our language. And there are decent translations out there today that are Bible-believing. We shouldn't, make the, we shouldn't deny people the Bible in their own language. When I was in Sri Lanka... They forbid the Bible and anything except the King James to people who didn't speak English. It's like you're denying them the Bible. That's the most horrible thing you can do. Yes, their local translation was terrible in Cambodia. The, the Cambodian translation was just atrocious. It was a bad paraphrase with bad theology but it was better than nothing. <laughs> and some Cambodians were being told they couldn't be saved unless they read the King James Bible. And you have to deal with those things. It's a terrible thing. I want to make two points. If that text was original, wouldn't it have been a great way to prove the existence of the Trinity during all the Trinitarian heretical problems they had in the first two or three centuries? after Christ. There were terrible fights about the Trinity that split the church as heretics tried to teach you know, that the Holy Spirit wasn't a person, that he wasn't real, that it was just God's Spirit. They tried to teach that Jesus wasn't God. 
Wouldn't that be a verse they would all use? Well, in all of the writings Christians use to defend against these heresies, nobody quotes this passage because it didn't exist. That's my first point. Second point, a great textual scholar, F.F. Bruce, he died in 1990, he said if you gave him the worst possible reading of all the 5,000-plus Greek texts that were around in his day, that there wasn't a single doctrine he couldn't prove. You know, eliminating this passage that probably didn't exist in the original Bible doesn't mean the Trinity isn't real and doesn't exist and you can't prove it. We don't need to get wrapped up in these things. So let's not waste time thinking about that. It's probably not original. It's, well, it's certainly not original. Let's just move on. What we have in the ESV is excellent. It comes to the real point of the passage perfectly. And what is then the real point of the passage? Bit of a problem. I'm going to do one of my favorite things now. I'm going to disagree with Calvin. <laughs> Don't worry, everybody does. What does it mean? Well, Luther and Calvin, amongst others, saw in this passage... And by the way, they did not accept the, the, the Latin edition. They saw in this passage water being baptism and blood being the Lord's Supper. And they saw it as the two sacraments of the New Testament. And they linked these together. And you can consider it based part on Peter's remarks. Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, we talked about that passage before, right? The spirits are now in prison, but they were preached to by Noah when he was alive. Because they formerly did not obey when they were alive. When, God's, when in God's patience he waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand with, of God with the angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. Uh, no, by the way, Noah and his company were not immersed in the water, even though that's baptism. Uh, the godless were the ones who were immersed. The point here being, though, that water and baptism are very tightly linked, and that's certainly true. And when Peter baptized the very first Gentiles, he said, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Everyone who believes was baptized with water is a sign and a seal that they were joined together with Christ and had received the benefits of the covenant of grace, and that they were engaged to be the Lord's. Water in baptism is easy to see the link. The problem is the blood. If we think of blood as a symbol of the Lord's Supper, John has already told us the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins, John 1.7, and we know that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins, John 4.10, but blood is really only half of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. 
There's also the body of Christ represented by the bread. And it's not the blood which is the sign, but the wine. That is, the bread and the wine are the signs of the new covenant, not the body and the blood. And so it's a little, it doesn't fit perfectly. Uh, Calvin was prone to do that sort of thing sometimes in his commentaries and in his interpretations. And I, I wouldn't really be able to agree with him because I think it's just too strained. Water could be the sign of baptism, but blood, not a very good sign of the Lord's Supper. So I wouldn't follow him. Augustine and some of the other ancient commentators had another interpretation. They linked it to the spear thrust into the Lord's side. You remember in John 19, the spear is thrust into the side and water and blood came out. And, well, it's true, it's real. There's water and blood there. And he was a witness to the crucifixion as a historical effect uh, act, and we're talking about the witness of them here. So there's a possibility there. But how are they, what are they a witness to? Uh, it's kind of strained. It could be talking about them being a witness to his accomplishing the work, his death, but a little strained. And how are they a testimony to him as the son of God? There would be a testimony to him being really dead. But how in our context, he's their witness to him being truly the son of God, the Christ. And so again, a little difficult to fit the context. Now, a French theologian named Francis Turretin, and unfortunately, his works are hard to get in English. I guess they're now translated. But he, uh, he had a really excellent idea on how to deal with this. He looked at the context and brought up the teachings of a heretic named Serenthus, or Kerenthos in Greek, who was around the time 50 to 100 AD, so around the time John was probably fighting in the churches with the heresies. And he and his followers taught that Jesus was only a man, born of Joseph and Mary, and he's the one who taught that Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and left Jesus before the cross. And John is really calling out those kind of people in this passage. Right? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist, which denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John, 1 John 2, 22 and 23. And again, he warns, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, that when Jesus was born, he was already the Christ. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world. Remember, we've, we've considered previously that Jesus had to be God to pay for our sins on the cross. 
The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And no man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that a man should live on forever and never see the pit. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. Jesus had to be God to pay the infinite price due for sin, due for our sin. Thus it was Jesus, the God-man, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans 4.25. He had to be, he was raised because the price for sin, which could never suffice, was sufficiently paid in him because of the infinite worth he had as God's son, as the Christ, as the Messiah, the true Messiah, being God and man. And that's what he had to suffer and die on the cross, both as man to be our substitute and as God to be sufficient. And he's raised from the dead because the debt being paid, death no longer had power over him because he had nothing to be dead for. And so he was alive. And that's the understanding Turretin had. Seeing this verse as a defense of what it means that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man, he was and continues to be God and man, two distinct natures in one person forever. So that was kind of his understanding of the passage, and I think that's the best one. We are talking about the witness that Jesus is the Christ. How does the water and the blood witness to that? So that would mean, the interpretation would then be that Jesus Christ, the God-man, passed through his baptism, where he started his ministry as God and man, and his death on the cross as propitiation for us as God and man, and thus the water was baptism, of Jesus and the blood is the death on the cross that Jesus the whole time being God and man denying these antichrists who were saying that he was not at those times God and man and then of course there's the third one and the third who testifies is the Holy Spirit and John's been talking about that testimony throughout the book well not through the whole book but through the last chapter anyway, the last couple of chapters. <clears throat> he said, whoever keeps the commandments abides in God and God abides in him. And by this we know that he abides in him by the spirit whom he has given us. First John three twenty four. So God has given us his spirit and that spirit testifies to us and in us. If God's spirit is in us, he testifies to us that we belong to God and we know we belong to God because we're living a new life of obedience in him because his spirit has transformed our life. And we know our life is transformed because we can see that in our actions and the way we live. Thus, our faith, our obedience go hand in hand throughout all of First John. We talked about that last week in the first five verses of this chapter. And our obedience testifies to us then that the spirit is in us. The Spirit being in us testifies to us also about 
the work of Christ in our life. He told us, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, these false teachers who are denying the Christ, but the anointing that you received in him abides in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And you should need no one to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. 1 John 2, 26 and 27. This was a promise that if we made faithful and diligent use of the means God has given us, then God's Spirit will use that to help us understand his word and use it to defend us from the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you while I am alive and with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, We need the foundation of the inspired word for the Holy Spirit to bring it to remembrance and for us to then know all these things that we can be defending and for this witness. So we know about Jesus as the Christ. We know that he is the God-man, that he has always been God and man, two natures in one person through his whole life, through his whole ministry on the cross. We know the importance and the value of that from Scripture and the Spirit testifies to that in our hearts when we read Scripture and we understand that meaning and that knowledge. And so we have him being God at his baptism. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We have him being God and man on the cross, being able to pay for our sins. We have the testimony of the Spirit through the Scriptures telling us that this is indeed what it is and why. And we can be knowing that and be certain. And that's what the Scriptures are really there for. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for everything, for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Everything promised by John is really in the scriptures. That's where we look for it, and that's where the Spirit reminds us of having seen it, read it, and found it, and teaches us about it. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are all in agreement with the one true gospel concerning Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. Just as John has laid out in his gospel, just as John has shown us in the test that he's given us to tell whether we really have been transformed by that gospel. And these antichrists, these false prophets, these heretical teachers are ultimately disagreeing with this teaching. Hence, he has warned us not to believe every spirit, but to test them, whether they are in agreement with the scripture or not, whether they are confessing the Christ of the scriptures or not. And these ones I mentioned that are denying that Jesus is truly the God-man, the Christ, they are denying it, so we should know they are not of God. They do not know God. So these three testify that Jesus is the God-man, that Jesus, and they testify of God's, of Christ's redeeming work. And in verse 9 and 10, 
we are then charged to receive that testimony. Uh, starts off with the testimony of men. What is he talking about here? Might be lost on us at first, but remember the Old Testament. A single witness shall not be sufficient against any person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with any of the offenses he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established, Deuteronomy 19.15. Jesus repeats this in Matthew 18, talking about when your brother sins against you. And here John is pointing out, if you accept the witnesses of three men, how much more greater is it if we accept three witnesses provided by God? Shouldn't we believe that? And that's what we have in this passage. God has borne divine witness to him at his baptism. When he was baptized, he can't, when he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, the Spirit of God descended on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son, beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And also at his death, it was the propitiation for our sins. We read 1 John 2, 2. And God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held for it, by it. Acts 2.24, why? Well, we just talked about that. God was testifying that he had paid the debt for our sin in full. Nothing else was owed, so Jesus could not stay dead because the wages of sin is death. The wages was paid for, so death was no longer binding, and he was alive. Of course, Testimony about him being the propitiation for our sin is really what's in mind here. He was offered to God with our sins, and Jesus then reconciled us to God, appeased his wrath that was due to our sin, paid our debt in full. We've sinned and come short of the glory of God, justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, that because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. To show his righteousness at the present time, that it might be just in the justifier, the one who has faith in Christ. In other words, even though Christ had not yet died for the believer in the Old Testament, he, he didn't punish them for their sins, knowing that Christ would die for their sin in the future. So he passed over their sins, knowing they'd be paid for later. But this is what's leading us up to verse 10, that he died as a propitiation for our sin. The one who receives this testimony... Verse 10 is the one who believes in the Son of God, the same thing. That one has the testimony in himself, that is, in his heart. If we abide in him and he abides in us, it is because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in God, God abides in him. 
1 John 4, 13 through 16. If God's given us his spirit, his spirit abides in us. We know God's love for us, and we've seen it and professed Jesus as the Christ. And that testimony is our assurance, and that, that indwelling of God then becomes greater and greater. And this is a principle Jesus was talking about when he said, for everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, Matthew 25, 29. You know, as we are given faith, we have it. We exercise it. More and more is given to us. God's spirit is in us. The testimony of scripture becomes in us. As we read the scripture, it becomes clear. More is given to us, the more we have. And it is a wonderful and glorious thing. And it leads us to greater and greater assurance in our life. Because we are living more for God and he is giving us that assurance through our life. But he says, the one who does not believe God, the testimony of God, makes him out to be a liar. I think we can all understand this, right? Uh, we have something important to relate. We're careful to do so. We present the evidence. We present the proof. We give everything in order. We're being careful to relate the facts, to give the evidence. It's clear, it's perfectly proven, and yet they refuse to listen, refuse to believe. They call us a liar. How do we feel? Offended. Well, how do you think God feels who cannot lie? You know, he is greatly offended by what they do. It is a great insult to God that the truth is plain to them, as we've been talking about in Romans chapter 1 in our Sunday afternoon class. It's plain to them that they, didn't, they refuse to believe it. And what does he do? He punishes them by hardening their hearts, by withdrawing from them. Not everybody will receive that testimony, but we do. What happens? Well, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son, verse 11 and 12. God's testimony in his word is that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. His promise that whoever believes in the son has life, John 3.36. Jesus has sworn this to us with these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 5:24. It's both a free gift from God, and it's an unchangeable will of God. And Jesus says that. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I have not come from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six thirty seven through 40. Which is why he can say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 6, 47. This is, as we will see next week, the purpose of his book, this letter 
that we may be certain that we have this eternal life. Remember, we're talking about John 3:16 and following. Actually, we read part of John 3:18 earlier. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. John 3, 18 through 20. Those who do not believe are already condemned because of their sin. They're separated from God. They don't abide in him. John, 1 John 3, 6. They, do, they haven't been cleansed by the blood of Christ, 1 John 1, 7. They've not received the propitiation for their sins, talked about in 1 John 2, 2. Indeed, whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, John 3, 36. John doesn't mince any words. He may be the apostle of love, but that love is to warn people that if you do not believe in the name of the Son of God, there is no salvation, there is no hope. Many false teachers today say that you know many paths lead to heaven or all paths lead to heaven. But John says only through the Son of God, through the Christ, and only the Christ of the Bible not the Christ of the heretics he was fighting against, not those who denied that he came in the flesh, not those who denied that he died as God-man. Now, it's a very narrow path that leads to heaven. And we need to remind people of that and warn them of that, just as John does. Because without that, there is no hope for mankind. Unless we believe and the only Son of God, the one of the Bible, the one that God has sent, true one, there is no hope, there is no salvation outside of him. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to die for our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins to appease your wrath, to reconcile us to you, to bring us back to your favor, to bring us life. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with love for you, love overflowing, that your commandments may seem a joy, living for you and dying to our sin would be our great desire. Teach us, Lord, to live for you more and more each day, remembering that we have the Son, that we have life in you and in him. Teach us to treasure that life, to live for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.